Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Friday, October the 11th, and you are very welcome to the latest in our regular weekly additional Brexit Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and with me in studio today, I'm very glad to welcome economist and Irish Times columnist David McWilliams. Hey, you. How are you? Not so bad. And our political editor, Pat Lee. Hello, Hugh. Um, we're going to touch on a number of subjects today, Pat. But first, what the hell happened at that meeting between Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson on the Wirral yesterday? Well, let's start with what we, uh, what we do know for certain, right? And that is that there was a significant change in mood as a result of that meeting. And, you know, we've discussed over recent weeks in this room on a number of occasions the fact that neither Dublin, Brussels, uh, neither Dublin nor Brussels are indeed London, uh, had any great hopes that they were moving towards a deal. And while Boris Johnson continued to say in public, we think we can get a deal, there was no real hope in official circles in that Brexit triangle that there was any hope of a deal. After yesterday's meeting, that changed. So they are now saying the two governments came out with a statement last night, a joint statement after the meeting, which took everybody by surprise, saying that they could see a pathway to a deal. Uh, the mood music around it was very positive. Boris, uh, Leo Varadkar came out, gave quite an upbeat press conference, didn't give away any details, but reiterated what was in the statement saying he could see a deal. And the mood music around Irish government circles last night was quite, uh, was quite positive. So whatever the exact exchanges in that, and we can talk in, in the meeting, and we can talk about that uh, shortly, it's clear that as a result of that, something changed. So this morning, on the back of that, uh, Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator, meets Steve uh, Barclay, the Brexit secretary in Brussels. And as a result of that meeting, we now appear to be heading towards the infamous tunnel, not the tunnel of love, but the tunnel of Brexit negotiations, a somewhat less attractive ride. So It's um, basically the tunnel you go into and you say, I can't hear you anymore, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to hang up. There's no communication with the outside world. Yeah, it's basically a sealed negotiating process in which the two teams go into it, nothing comes out of it, nothing comes out of it until there is a resolution at the end. That resolution is either a deal or it's not a deal. But what you won't have is each side going back and forward to their negotiating masters during the process. There's no media leaks out of it. People are not reporting uh, to their constituencies out of it and they either produce a deal or not. Or, or not. We saw it with the, uh, with the negotiations conducted with Theresa May's government and now they appear to be going back into that again. Now, how long is the tunnel of Brexit negotiation love? Um, it seems very unlikely that they, would, they will reach the end of it before next week's European Council and people that I've been speaking to about it this morning are of that view. However, they do seem to think that if 
the sort of signals that were exchanged between the parties at the meeting last night and the meeting this morning are made good within the tunnel if they're given concrete form that there is the prospect of uh, an agreement if not by next week, then before the end of October. And in a moment, we might talk about what the details of that might actually turn out to be. But first, David, I mean, you're a great man for the game theory. What do you make of what's being laid out there by Pat in terms of where the different parties are? Well, it was interesting you were talking about the tunnel there. I remember the last Irishman to negotiate in the tunnel was Roy Keane against Vieira. Do you remember that particularly fine episode for sealed in the tunnel before the big game? No, I think that obviously if what we're hearing is right... Boris Johnson, of, of course, Leo Varadkar's leverage was much, much more significant yesterday when he went in to the World Meeting because he had nothing really uh, politically on in the next couple of weeks to freak him out. Whereas Johnson, for Johnson, the big political fear was he'd have to call the extension or the extension would be called on him. He'd have to actually abide by it. He then would call in an election at a time when he hadn't delivered Brexit and consequently the Brexit party would eat his lunch and he'd have to drag the Tories where I don't believe is a place he wants to go because Johnson himself is kind of a cosmopolitan. He's a metropolitan. He's not really a Brexit English nationalist or at least wasn't up till about uh, six or seven weeks ago. And he was to drag the Tories over to the right and try to win the election by fighting the Brexit party on their own turf. And I think that was and lose metropolitan England as a result. So that for him was the nightmare scenario because he may well have lost that election. If, and again, this is my own understanding of UK politics, if he delivers Brexit via the tunnel, and if he delivers it on time, and then if he goes to the country, he'll win hands down. He will win hands down, and he will win not as an extreme Tory, but as a one-nation-ish Tory, slightly more 21st century version of a one-nation Tory, and that's where he wants to be. So consequently, Johnson had all this going on in his head on Tuesday when he had a scrap with Merkel over the airwaves and when they were pointing the finger at Leo Varadkar over the airwaves. And I'm sure that he just made a political calculation. He said, if if I don't get something done, I'm toast. Something else happened uh, significant on Tuesday as well, which is that Johnson had a meeting with the group of Tory rebels and they made it clear to him, not the ones he's thrown out of the party, but the ones that are still in the party, And they made it clear to him that they would not sanction a Tory manifesto. They would not fight on a Tory manifesto. This is the one nation group. That threatened no deal. And if Boris Johnson couldn't go to the country uh, threatening no deal, then that opens the door for the Brexit party voters. Now, I differ slightly from David in my analysis. I think it would be possible for Johnson to fight an election within an extension that had been forced upon him as the man to deliver Brexit, who promised to do it by October 31st. And was thwarted by all these foreigners. Because let me just ask you, everything we've heard about over the last few weeks is that the dominant coming, coming strategy is an election fought on people versus parliament, with Boris Johnson representing the former. Yes, but... But his party, but the problem is that he destroys his party if he does that. I mean, Cummins, there was a very, there was an interesting, uh, and this is maybe the people you're talking about, Pat. I think the, the 
the FT on Monday or something had a letter by sort of middle of the road Tories signed by maybe 20 MPs but led by Penny Mordaunt who Johnson kicked out of the party and I had a long conversation with her about a year ago and she's a Brexiteer she's from Plymouth she's very much you know former Royal Navy SEAL or whatever whatever the, the title is anyway it struck me that Johnson without those people and that they're still in the party there isn't a Tory party. There's a Brexit party dressed up as a Tory party. And I don't believe that even if Cummings wanted this, this is not what Johnson, the type of party he wants to lead. I really, and, and, and I don't think people versus parliament, you know, the British people are not that gullible. They want their institutions to work. I mean, it's very, very risky if you decide that you're going to be the leader of a peasant revolt. Uh, which is basically essentially what Cummings wants. It's a very risky strategy. It can go wrong very, very easily. All you've got to do is say, look, to all middle-of-the-road, middle-class English people, you know, do you think the judiciary are traitors? No. Do you think the parliament is a traitor? No. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a strategy that can unravel incredibly quickly in an election. Mm-hmm. It is, but it can also be for the purposes of an election and the short duration of an election campaign, it can be incredibly potent. And I still don't think that it is off the table. And I think if okay. these negotiations do not produce an agreement and... They're back to square one. What are the odds on that? 50-50 or, 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 or less, then I think we will be in that, we will be in that situation. Uh, however, I do agree with David that that is probably not... Johnson's first preference but like any politician what he has to do is react to the circumstances that are put in front of him. So Pat can you just lay out for me if there were to be a deal what would it look like? There are two key issues as we know there's um, there's customs on the island of Ireland and there's the role of the assembly of the local political establishment in Northern Ireland in continuing or agreeing or having some input into the agreement. Yeah so they were the two uh, they were they were the two issues that were outstanding before this meeting are they were the big objections on the Irish stroke EU side the issue that uh, of customs customs checks of some sort on the island of Ireland which notwithstanding the significant moves made by Boris Johnson the previous week when he offered to keep uh, Northern Ireland under single mar- under many of the single market rules the fact that it was leaving the customs union would still require customs checks somewhere on the island of Ireland. That's a big no-no for uh, for the Irish. And the nature of the consent mechanism for Northern Ireland, which, as the DUP understood it on last week's proposals, would enable them to veto any differences in uh, in the regulatory regime between the UK and uh, the rest or of the UK. Or indeed, to be more precise, to Ireland. veto the continuation of such an agreement on a regular basis. Thank you for um, but uh, so if there is now, as a leader say, a pathway to a deal, then there is a pathway around or through those two uh, uh, those those two objections, those two issues that are that were blocking the way until uh, uh, until this meeting. So what we think is that the British have proposed uh, what is a version of a scaled down version of Theresa May's idea for a customs partnership between the UK and the EU in which the 
UK would leave the customs union but would still operate its rules on behalf of the UK, thus meaning that there wouldn't be a need for... In Northern Ireland. Uh, Sorry, yeah, yeah. No, her her offer was the whole of the UK, thus meaning that there wouldn't be a need for border checks in Ireland, the UK operating the same customs regime as as the rest of... uh, Northern Ireland operating the same customs uh, rules as the rest of the UK. Now, so what we think is that what has been offered by the British is a scaled-down version of that. Applying the joint customs partnership only to the area of Northern Ireland. Now, what that would mean is that Northern Ireland would leave, along with the UK, would leave the EU's customs union. However, and that's a red line, or at least it was a red line for Mr. Uh, for Mr. Johnson. However, despite leaving, Northern Ireland would administer the EU's customs rules. And it would do that on goods travelling between the uh, rest of the UK and Northern Ireland, just as it does uh, under the Johnson plan of last week in terms of the regulatory differences between the two. So what that would mean is that the North gets to leave the customs union, as Johnson has promised, but because it applies the EU's customs rules... There is no need for checks on the island of Ireland. So it ticks. Can I ask a stupid question? Not for the first time, says you. In what way is that different from the original Northern Ireland backstop, which was agreed a year and a half or so ago before conniptions from the DUP led to that backstop being extended to the whole of the United Kingdom? Because the whole of the United Kingdom was going to leave the customs union under that agreement, but remain completely aligned until a solution could be found to the yeah. Irish problem. Wasn't that the, essentially what it, the agreement? What it, what, it does, what it does is, it, yes, so all of the UK under, under the backstop. The, the, the idea of the backstop was to take away the need for border checks. So what Mrs May committed to doing was to keeping all of the UK under, uh, in, in the customs union until such time as there was, uh, until such time as the alternative arrangements, which could have been, uh, which the British kept talking about, could ensure a frictionless uh, a Which frictionless was a concession border. granted to her, an extension of a, a larger thing than because the original Northern Ireland Because her original proposal was yeah. a Northern Ireland only backstop, but that didn't fly with yeah. the DUP. But something has clearly changed in the DUP assembly, Bright outlined for us last week, that they would sign up to the, uh, that, the, that, that they would sign up to the proposals made last week by Boris Johnson when he proposed regulatory differences between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And one of the things that suggests to me that there is business being done here on several fronts is the silence from the DUP both last night and today. That suggests to me that there is business being done between them you, and Downing David, you, you've written and spoken quite a lot about the position of Northern Ireland in, in all of this. What do you think well, might that be strikes me now? is that this is the backstop for slow learners. This is, again, we're back to this, this the same idea. But the it will, it will for slow be called, it will be it will called, be called But it is the backstop for slow learners. It's exactly the same, more or less the same idea, which is that acknowledging the basic idea that Northern Ireland is different. It's different from Hull, it's different from Kent, it's different from Yorkshire, it's different from Scotland because, not only the Good Friday Agreement, but everything we know about the fact that it is a disputed piece of territory. So the DUP have always taken the view that Northern Ireland is the same. 
you know, the, the Finchley and Derry uh, idea. This acknowledges that Northern Ireland is different. If the DUP can wear whatever compromise is being hatched, then it allows them to try and spin this as they are a responsible, economically literate party when they really aren't. They, they haven't really shown any evidence of that, but they have to genuflect to it. My own fear in the North always has been that economically the Northern Irish economy doesn't look, feel or smell like almost any economy in Western Europe. And by that I mean it's incredibly top-heavy, as we know, with the civil service. It is devoid of any industrial base, as you'd understand a Western economy to have. It doesn't really have net of the British exchequer service economy that actually buys and sells services to each other, buys and sells services to the British state. And in order for Northern Ireland to become a normal part of this neck of the woods, the economy needs to begin to look and smell like maybe this one. And the only way, of course, the North can do that is if they're open to trade, if they get the idea of how modern economies work. And what they work by is very simple. You, somewhere like Northern Ireland doesn't have its own capital base. So you have to import the capital. So either you import it via the public sector, the UK, and subsidies, or you do what we do, you import it from productive capital from somebody else, Facebook, Apple, Google, Pfizer, whoever. And what you do is you take other people's capital, you fuse it with your own labour, you make higher value-added goods, you export those, and you pay yourself better. That's it. That's what modern economics is about. It's about. It's really easy. So if the North manages to end up this promised land, economically at least, of one foot in the EU, one foot in the UK, as a free trading zone, then for me this is the ultimate positive outcome for the North. And against the background of this analysis is the ticking demographic clock, which is changing the political reality. By the birth, every single child that is born in the North is now changing the political reality in the next generation. And that political reality is one that Catholic stroke nationalists are going to be in an electoral majority very soon. Not just a demographic majority, but soon an electoral majority. We do majority. know, though, David, from history and from other geographical examples around the world, that when groups within a given society that have been in a position of supremacy or majority or dominance, their dominance is threatened in some way, they don't always act in a rational fashion in reacting to that. They don't. Uh, but again, I, I don't believe in the idea that every unionist is without an economic or logical part of their brain with which to analyse their future and their children's future and their prospects. And I think there is clearly a significant minority who do not want and will not countenance a ch constitutional change. But you know what? Change happens. I think one of the big and challenges... That's, I, I just, so, so that's the background noise to, to, to this. Mm. This is what makes Brexit both exciting from our perspective and incredibly dangerous at the same time. But also, even if a deal is done, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, it throws down the gauntlet to the south to change our behaviour towards the north, not least because the end game, not maybe not in our generation, but in the next one, will be that the north will be like an unwanted child that will have to be picked up and it'll be picked up by the Republic. I think, I think, I think there's, there's something that I'll come back to that in, in, in a minute. But I think 
what David says illustrates one of the real challenges for the Irish government in the short term in the management of these negotiations and the presentation of whatever comes out of these negotiations. And I think that will be to reassure unionists and the DUP in particular that this does not have constitutional implications. No triumphalism, in other words. Yeah, absolutely so. the opposite. The opposite, so. you know, and, the, to do uh, the Mandela thing, to actually what Mandela did, you know, is not, not raise his fist and say black power won, but actually to make the first move, he went to the Afrikaners and said, you have a place here. And we've got to do this sort of, these sort of gestures. I think, I, because I think that, you know, the, the sort of anxieties and fears that a deal of this nature, if it yeah. comes, it comes to pass, will arouse in unionism, will be very... Very considerable very because real. as David is someone who knows the unionist community well will know that deep in the heart of unionism, the great fear that lurks there is not of Dublin or nationalism, yeah. it's of betrayal by, yeah, by London. By conservative London as well. And you can see how this, if it comes to pass, could be presented then, as that. To bring it back to the concrete then, to come to the other leg of this, apart from the yes. the, the, the DUP certainly feel that they made a major concession in terms of the, the different approach to the single market, which was laid out in the initial proposal um, last week. But the other leg of this was what's been described in some quarters as a veto and other people have used other, other words, but was that within the Assembly, the Assembly would need to approve whatever arrangements were, were finally agreed and would have a recurring role in continuing to approve them. And we know from the Assembly, the history of the Assembly for the last 20 years or so, and the way in which it is constructed in that buy-in is required from, from both sides of the, of the community in Northern Ireland, that that does effectively mean a veto. And it seems very unlikely to me that the EU and Dublin will agree to anything of that sort. They might agree to the inverse of it, which would be no change will be allowed without the agreement of both sides of the community. But would that wash with the DUP? Well, I can't see that it would. So just as the Irish government won't countenance a veto for the DUP... Nor you would think with the DUP countenance a veto for Sinn Féin. And to be honest, I just don't know how they will square that circle. But I thought it was interesting that Julian Smith, the Northern Secretary who uh, has been in Dublin a few times, Simon Coveney has met him in, uh, in, in the UK, uh, in, in, in Cambridge, and in uh, and in Belfast on a couple of occasions, and who, from people that I speak to uh, in the Irish government, seems to have impressed a lot of people uh, in in his first few months in that job. Anyway, but what he was saying last night, and he stoutly refused uh, to answer any questions about the detail of this. But what he did say was that if in any consent mechanism, it won't be possible for any one group or party. To uh, to have a veto on uh, whatever is going to happen. But the question so is: I Is a veto on change to... or a veto on remaining the same? When we had Brendan O'Leary, well, been... when we had Brendan O'Leary, who's the great historian of Northern Ireland in recent years, on uh, a few weeks ago, and he was talking about you know one side or the other claiming the right not to allow, no, you, claiming a veto over any further constitutional alteration or change. He pointed out that the Brexit vote itself is a massive constitutional change, which wasn't supported by the majority of the people of Northern Ireland. And, and and I just don't know how how you square the circle and I don't know if there is a plan to how to mm. square the circle. I, there is some talk of a referendum 
on uh, on this deal. But there is the fear that Leo Varadkar spoke about in the Dáil the other day that that referendum would turn into not a referendum on the proposals for a Brexit deal, but a referendum, a quasi-constitutional referendum. I, I think we're about to see a huge shift in unionism, a massive shift. I think it'll. I think Arlene Foster will be deposed in the next couple of weeks if this deal goes through. I think there's a monumental scrap going on between Dodds and Donaldson over who takes the mantle, Dodds being more of the same. Donaldson being the one uh, who, at least in his public utterances, suggests he's going to try and take unionism down a more constructive, more middle road. So I think what, what you what you look at unionism is that it reaches, uh, as I said before, you know, the DUP is the party that never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And this is another great example. Okay, they had the opportunity to come come out and say, you know what, the constitution is safe under the Good Friday Agreement. We've figured that out. This is not a threat to the Constitution. We're going to be the people that are going to use Brexit as an opportunity to build Northern Ireland. They decided, no, we're going to go into the bunker. What you notice about the DUP, I've noticed about them, A, it's a very secretive party, but B, all the talent is in Westminster. All the talent, okay? If you look at what the DUP did over the last 10 or 15 years, anybody who was clever and worth their salt said, you know what, that assembly... That's not for me. I want the bright lights of uh, Southwest One in in in, in London. That's and, where I want. And who could blame them? And who could blame the Northern Ireland secretaries? Ex- but you know what I mean. So, but but let's think about that. So, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, what Brexit means now is that the Assembly is going to be more important for Northern Ireland than Westminster. If we're right in our analysis of what's going to happen, the DUP have got to therefore turn their party around. They've got to put more talent in the assembly. They've got to have cleverer people scrapping on local issues, which they were happy to absolve to the assembly for years. So, I mean, Foster is not in their A-list of candidates. Let's be honest, okay? So what I see is there's going to be an internal coup in the DUP after this. Foster will be gone. There'll be a scrap between Donaldson and uh, Dodds, which is basically between the Church of Ireland and the Free Presbyterians. Let's cut it. That's exactly what's going on, right? It's a it's a religious scrap. It's a schism. Donaldson, I believe, is going to win it because the ordinary DUP voters will realise we've gone down the sort of neo-Paisley route. I mean, 1970s Paisley, it doesn't work anymore and we've got to go somewhere else. Paisley Jr. will end up being like Jackie Healy Ray. He's going to end up leaving the DUP and being a DUP light up a paisley light up in North Antrim and northern politics is going to go through a convulsion and nationalists will sit back and watch all this happen. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting picture but I want to bring it back to some nitty gritty here. which is No, 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 no listen, is this is much more interesting no, than nitty gritty no, 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 because you've got it, because if you don't get the Maybe big picture right, if you don't the get the big picture, picture right, the nitty gritty, you know, like what the thing about the North we know, we, we, we know is that the nitty gritty tends to change the big picture much more quickly than in normal societies because people get their nose out of joint very easily. Well, then let me look at some nitty-gritty in the big picture, Pat, which is that we have a clock in our studio wall. It's ticking, as all clocks do. The kind of chronology of all this has become incredibly pressing 
deliberately, as we know, a lot of people were very critical of Boris Johnson that he misunderstood the way in which these processes work now because he was used to his experiences in Brussels 25 years ago where it was all about staying up till four o'clock in the morning and that it doesn't work that way anymore, although I seem to remember a couple of more recent EU crises that did work that way. Is it actually possible in any way to get something in this famed tunnel that relates to the council meeting next week and then to the probably pretty tortuous Westminster process with no guarantee of anything being passed uh, before 31st of October? Well, it seems to me that that remains a long shot, but a much le- a much shorter long shot than uh, than was the case earlier this week. And remember, you know, we should acknowledge the fact that reading the signs and talking to people up to yesterday, we were saying there isn't going to be a deal here. Sure. Now, suddenly things changed yesterday and a deal is now a realistic prospect in a way that nobody thought it uh, it could be before then. And, you know, we uh, in this podcast spoke to people from uh, a couple of times in recent weeks from the spe- Spectator in London who were very well plugged into Tory thinking. They said exactly the same uh, thing both to us and on their own podcast. So, um what does that tell us? It tells us that things can move quickly. If there are sudden moves in negotiations, then that alters uh, the reality of what is possible. Having said that, people that I'm talking to today trying to make sense of this, they don't have an expectation that you go in and go out of the tunnel that qu- that quickly. But what one person was saying to me is that what might be more likely are certainly more possible, is that the thing goes into the tunnel, it comes out of the tunnel momentarily in time for next week's summit. Barnier gives uh, a positive report to the EU leaders. He says, we're not there yet, but we've made a lot of progress. We think we can get there in time for the 31st of October. The summit gives its approval for that. It uh, adjusts, if needs be, Barnier's negotiating mandate to take account of that. The tunnel, the two parties go back into the tunnel and at some stage over that two weeks, then uh, they come out of the tunnel with an agreement. In the intervening period between next week's summit, and we know the House of Commons is going to meet the Saturday after uh, the summit, the Boris Johnson says to the House of Commons, here is the shape of a deal. We're not there yet, but we think we can get there. I need to know that this House will support it. Now, the EU will have two uh, two big concerns as it goes into these negoci- negotiations. One, the practicality of the measures to do the customs checks, protect the single market and so forth that the British propose. And it's always on that practical level that uh, that British proposals for alternative arrangements and so forth have uh, have fallen down. So that will, will be one of its big concerns. The second concern is that this deal, if they agree it, can get through the House of Commons because, let's face it, they have been here before with Theresa May. So how do the British convince the EU that if they agree this deal, it will get through the House of Commons. And one of the few things that I'm told about the exchanges between the Irish and the British uh, uh, last night at the Wirral, or yesterday uh, on the Wirral, uh, is that the British are very confident that if they agree a deal, they can get it through the House of Commons. So how does Johnson demonstrate that to the EU? 
perhaps through votes, perhaps through some sort of a mechanism in the House of Commons, because without that, without uh, concrete assurances and a firm understanding, concrete assurances by the UK and firm understanding on the part of the EU that a deal would get through, I think they'd be very reluctant to conclude. So we have to know by the 19th because the Ban Act will kick in otherwise. Is that correct? He has to make a report under the Ben Act, I think, uh, on the 19th. And if the House... And I was reading the Ben Act the other day, so I'm trying to recall exactly what it says. Uh, uh, if there is no prospect of a deal, then he must... Uh, then he must... Uh, write a letter to the EU. David, I want to give you a big quick picture question because I knew you were coming in and there was something I particularly wanted to ask you. It still seems to be very likely, God knows what's going to happen over the next two months, but it still seems to be far more likely that the United Kingdom will exit the EU than that it will remain, although that remains a possibility. The, the picture of what the UK outside the EU will look like has changed with the changes in the Tory party and the changes in the leadership. And it's moved from what was generally described as a soft Brexit rather than a hard Brexit, to a Singapore of the north, of a, a buccaneering, free-trading... Yeah. Uh, um, I always think it's a bit like that Monty Python sketch at the start of one of their films where the, the, the bank sets sail as, as a bunch of pirates, you know, to take take over the world, that, that Britain will be a little bit like that. Is well, that in any way credible? Well, I mean, the, at this stage? the British have a choice. They'll either be... They're either, there are two models, and one is Singapore and the other is Venezuela. So take your pick. So the Corbyn model is Venezuela... And uh, if they do go down that road, what you will find is the economy will go into a tailspin. There'll be capital flight. There'll be a flight of talent, all that sort of stuff. So assuming that they don't do the, the, the labor, uh, the Corbyn labor uh, approach in the next election, then you have this Singapore model. I'm not too sure. What, what's always intrigued me about uh, the Singapore model is that the... It's based on the notion that the people who vote for the Conservative Party, the English nationalists who vote for the Conservative Party, want uh, low taxes and low social welfare and a small government. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. I think that the Brexit has thrown a total change into what the Tory party... If you are a Brexiteer, the chances are you're the loser in globalisation. Okay, the person who voted for Brexit, you have lost in the game of globalization. Your wages have fallen. You're living in a depressed area. The companies have closed down. You're a, you're a loser, right? And in the past, and I mean that not in the pejorative sense, but in the economic sense, in the past, the Tory has always been the party of winners, right? The Tories are the party of the upwardly mobile. I'm all right, Jack. I'm doing well. I can see a future for my kids. I can see a future for my kids. I'm going to pay less tax. We're going to privatize everything. So the Tories were the parties of the economic winners, and Labour was the party of economic losers. In a small way, that's changed around. The Brexit Tories are losers in economics, and they want something very, very different. They actually don't want Singapore. They actually want something much more protective. So my sense is that although Wimbledon and Richmond might want to be Singapore, I'm not too sure that uh, low tax, low regulation, which means low wages and more precariousness is actually the promise that Brexit suggests. Isn't that to the an electorate? analysis that applies not just to the Conservative Party, but to the centre-right on the right across that? It applies perfectly to the Republican Party in the, in the, United, in the United States, States as well, yeah. that there's this kind of deep paradox at the heart of, the co at, at, yeah. of their uh, modern of, coalition. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a, third, there's a third option also for the UK beyond Venezuela 
and Singapore. And that's the one where they actually just continue where they are now. I think they will leave the EU. I think they probably have to leave the EU. But I think if they succeed in getting this deal, there will be a hiss of decompression from Brexit as an issue, like the air going out of a tyre. And the negotiations on a free trade agreement will begin and they will go on and they'll go on and they'll go on. But the real political urge, the sort of the growing demanding momentum to get out and to have a deal and all that, all that will be gone. And I don't think it will build up again. And I think that the urgency of Brexit as an issue will just give way to politics to normal as normal. Stuff. And but it will become apparent to whoever is in government, whether it is the, you know, liberal one nation metropolitan Tory Boris that David described earlier are the post-Corbyn Labour Party because I think it is only a post-Corbyn Labour Party that can form uh, a government possibly in coalition with a centrist Liberal Democrats that it will become apparent to them that they will stay outside they must stay outside the EU but within its economic ambit and the drastic changes to their society and to their political makeup that are required by the Singapore and the Venezuela options. Yeah, they're they're just, just too convulsive. They the energy for it. Just, just maybe last the last thing, is, the last thing is, the, is the Scots. What did the Scots well, do? Well, exa- I was going to ask you this because I, I know you believe that this is going to have profound impacts for the, the future of the United Kingdom as currently constituted. And the other thing it's done is it has revealed, you know, deep cracks, one might say, faults in the constitutional order in the United Kingdom in terms of the inability of the system to deal with, with, with the challenge. So... It strikes me you're not convinced by by Pat's. No, I, I think that I think it's the beginning of the end for the UK. I think we're we're witnessing it. Sometimes you know you, you ask people who lived through the Yugoslav no, no, wars. David, it is the, merely the end <laughs> of the beginning. <laughs> but you do you know you ask people who lived through these convulsive periods and they say, oh, we didn't really realise what was going on. I, I think if we stand back, what we're witnessing is the is is the end of the United Kingdom as a project, and uh, that project started you know four or five hundred years ago here in this country. And it's always been about how do you project English nationalism out from England? And how do you disguise that project under a flag of convenience called Britain, which uh, absorbs in your near neighbours into a, a joint project? And that lasted for 400 years and it peaked about 150 years ago and had a little wobble with us in 1916. And then I got a shot in the arm with the Second World War and got another shot in the arm with Mrs. Thatcher. But it's a, it's a project on the decline. It has been on the decline for 100 years. And this is, I think, the beginning of the end. And the end will be that Scotland will go independent in the course of the next decade. And that leads us back to the beginning of our conversation is what do we do with the legacy of the British Empire in Ireland, which is the Unionist community. And that is a question we'll get you in for another day. But that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to to Pat and to David and our producer Declan. And remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Acast and all the many other podcast providers that are out there. You can also get us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or I'm usually hanging around on Twitter and you can find me there too. Until the next time, thanks for listening. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. 
Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply.